is another exciting week here on Game of Crimes. Thought I'd do something different. Welcome, 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 y'all. Hey, that's my word. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> Sounded like he had a frog in his throat, didn't he? Got a frog in my throat now. Yeah, like James Brown, the hardest working man in show business. Huh. Okay. <laughs> I don't well, know where I that came from. I don't, know, I don't know what he just said, but okay. <laughs> lack of sleep, man. Lack <laughs> of sleep. That's all I can say. It's been lack of sleep. Actually, I did get some sleep, but got some good exercise yesterday. But anyway, I digress. Welcome y'all back to the original, one and only, unadulterated with all that fluff game of crimes, man. We are on top of it. This is going to be episode 97. Can you believe that? 97. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> we got to figure out who we're going to put in the uh, slot 100. Yeah, we're going to have to figure that out. We have to figure that out. But anyway, in the meantime, guys, hey, welcome back again. Another exciting episode coming up your way. But before we get to that, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. It helps us out a lot. We really do appreciate it. Also, head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. That's where you're going to find a book from the guests that we have coming up here. We'll tell you about shortly. You know, our mailing list is there, merch list. Follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. But where you got to be, you got to be on Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Huh? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you been drinking though? What are you doing? No, dude, I need to start drinking. It's just, it's been, you know, we're recording this on a weekend and it's just, I've had a lot of stuff going on. And so the weekends are supposed to be for relaxing, but we did that yesterday. But I, I'm, 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 I'm on a mission to get this book done. I'm, I'm nearly done with my nice. second draft. Yeah. So All right. working hard on it. So anyway. But uh, but if you want to find out about that, go to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Look, we had a great 911 episode of What's Your Emergency. Mm-hmm. We've got some good stuff coming up. we got our Q&A. Already got questions coming in. So if you're listening to this, you will be listening to this on Monday, the 8th. Get your questions in if you are a Patreon subscriber. And if you're not, join us, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes, and see what all the hubbub is about, bub. Yeah, bub. That's and right. I tell you what, man, that that uh, interview we did with Kevin Holtry, we're still getting comments on that. That was thank you for your replies, your your uh, comments about Kevin. We'll pass it along. I mean, everybody's in love with this guy now because he broke everybody's heart. Yeah, unbelievable. And then uh, and then we got Kevin Black chiming and still crapping his pants. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got requests to bring Kevin Black on. We have to bring him back for some more stuff. He's funny. I'll have, well, I'll have to see if he's cropped his knickers this time instead of his pants. <laughs> All right there, lads. But hey, but no, we have a ton of fun on uh, Patreon. So uh, just go over to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We've got that coming up. We've got, um, uh, we had, we just did Case of the Month, which a lot of people are, are liking, you know, the things we're doing with that. Uh, we've got Warden of the Throne. We've got, um, we did just did our review of uh, Rambo. 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 First it was blood. good. First yep. Blood. That was a good one. So, yeah, guys, do that and uh, just come over and join the fun with us, right? So, but the other thing you got to do too, though, before we get into um, this stuff, you just on, head on over to Game of Crimes Fans. That is our fan page run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. We've got, I mean, over 800 people, I think, in that group right now. Lots of fun besides the memes, but we get some good comments from there. By the way, guys, we get some great ideas from you. Some of our episodes that have come up and some that are coming up come from you folks out of our Game of Crimes fans group. So just head on over there, answer a couple questions. It's easy. You know, if you're deemed worthy, you'll be let into the inner sanctum, right? Where all the fun and hoopla ensues. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, just speaking to Kevin Holter, you just got a message from uh, Alex, who was the our listener that introduced us to Kevin or, or gave us the idea. So just shows you we do listen to what you say. We're really serious when we say we would like to hear your feedback. And let me tell you what, at that, thank you, thank you. That was, that. I'm telling you, most emotional. We've had some episodes that have tugged at the heart. This is the most emotional episode we ever did. You're not kidding. <laughs> You're not Let's kidding. stop it before we start it again. God damn it. Quit cutting onions. Quit cutting onions. Okay. Now, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but according to Florida state law in the United States Code, Title 18, Section 34.2, what, Murph? I don't know. Hey, Title 18, that's money laundering. But we never take ourselves serious. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you know we don't take ourselves seriously? Just listen to us. <laughs> Just listen to us. It's like two morons when you're doing it. Well, and the other reason we don't, because we talk about certain things, and guess what time it is, Murph? Guess what time it is? Guess what time it is? I bet it's time for... 
Small town police blogger. And I got to tell you, this one's not so much of a story as I'm just putting in a new section called WTF over. (laughs) What the fuck? And Murphy, we talked, but I got it. I went looking for this story Uh and there were like 300 entries when I searched the web for it. Uh oh. What what keywords did you put in there? Meth 60 pounds. suspect a suspected drug trafficker is on the run with nearly 60 pounds of meth 27 kilograms that belong to the riverside county sheriff's office after an undercover case went wrong oh that's not good that's not they set up the sting (laughs) they set up the sting wednesday this happened just a couple weeks ago in an attempt to identify drug traffickers what i mean you set up a sting. if you're gonna do it folks here's a pro tip don't use real meth They used 60 pounds of the real stuff. Oh, no. They met with him for the drug sale, and guess what? He decided, guess what? I'm going to drive away. They tried to stop him. He didn't want to stop. That wasn't in his plans, and he sped off. Due to the high speed and suspect's disregard for public safety, maybe the disregard for public safety started when you allowed a guy to walk with 60 pounds of meth. Oh, jeez. That's that's terrible. In a response to an emailed request for comments sent by the Associated Press, the Sheriff's Office declined to release additional details. After the transaction, when he sped away, the street value of the meth is $150,000 to $210,000 worth of meth. Wow. Wow. You know what? I think that's one of those occasions when I might uh, waive that pursuit rule and you catch him at all costs. (laughs) You never... Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that later. Okay, Murph, I got another one for you too. Mm, we right. have talked. We have talked about a lot of um, ways to evade the law. Like this guy, he sped away in a car, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, in Hoax Bluff, Alabama, population four thousand four hundred and forty-six. Salute. Got a new one for you. Okay. A thief in Alabama tried to evade police. After he was seen wandering through backyards, stealing a lawnmower and a leaf blower, reports the Gadsden Times. Some residents confronted the man early afternoon, prompting him to flee to the Coosa River, according to Police Chief Tyler Rowe. Officers soon arrived and tracked the suspect in a kayak. He hopped into a kayak (laughs) and went down the river. They had eyes on him, then they lost him, then they caught sight of him again, Rose said. They didn't have to watch long. He didn't get far before the kayak flipped and he started swimming to the bank where officers were waiting for him. He was he didn't, swim, he didn't swim to the opposite bank. They were on both sides. Oh, all right. Oh, God's, good they're thinking ahead, thinking yep. ahead there, you boys, a good fellow. They tackled and arrested him. The Atala man, now charged with burglary, theft of property, attempt to elude, and resisting arrest. I would have got the fish and game people in there to write him a ticket for being in a water on the water without a water flotation, personal safety flotation device. I would have <laughs> just hammered him. Throw the book at him. <laughs> he told police he was stealing the items to sell so he could get his girlfriend's vehicle out of impound. Oh, boy, that's that's a really uh, upstanding couple there, huh? wonder what she did to go get her car impounded. Uh, I don't know. Math. Uh, math, probably math. Rule number one, kids, don't do math. Hey, guess what, Steve? No. What? It's always nice. Don't you like it, though, when criminals turn themselves in? I mean, they just basically come and throw themselves, you know, down at your feet and say, arrest me? Yeah, I've had people challenge me. Go ahead, arrest me. You shouldn't challenge me. Well, these guys, these guys get the prize this week. They were smuggling 20 pounds of weed from Las Vegas to Bozeman, Montana. And you know how they ended up in jail? No. They were, they were pretty toasted. They called 911 to report that the cops were following them. <laughs> well, look out. They politely asked the emergency dispatcher to make those jack wagon cops stop it. The cops were not following them at the time, but after this call came in, they thought, huh, Here's a good idea. They showed up after the call, during which Leland Ayala Doliente explained that he'd already tried waving down all of the cops in civilian cars, but it wasn't working. So he also noted the men had plenty of snacks and stuff with them and a pretty friendly pit bull. When the police really did arrive, the two men were standing with their hands behind their heads, ready to surrender. Their weed, which was hidden inside a garbage bag inside a dog carrier, had been neatly placed on the sidewalk. Now... Rule number one, we say, yeah, don't do meth, right? This guy's about to violate rule number two. 
Now, Holland Sward, he was the other guy, pled guilty to possession with intent to deliver and was sentenced to 30 days in jail and five years of probation. Uh, 30 days in jail, you know, you'd do that. That's, that's like a misdemeanor. That's a misdemeanor. Now, Ayala Doliente, he was sentenced to one and a half to eight years in prison. Do you know why, Murph? Felony stupidity? You guessed it, buddy. He showed up to the sentencing positive for marijuana, cocaine, and oxycodone on the day the judge was handing down his sentence. <laughs> he wanted to have plenty of sentence in his system. <laughs> oh, my God. He knew God. he was going away. He knew he was going away. Well, by the way, and we'll just finish out with one of the weirdest traffic laws in Montana since we were talking about Montana. Steve, What's that? you cannot drive a herd of livestock numbering more than 10 down an interstate highway unless the herd is preceded and followed by flagmen. And never would I want to either, so I'm <laughs> safe from that law. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. And thus, into the reading for today. Uh, I'll tell you what. It just Criminals never see. You know what? Criminals and drivers in Orlando never, never cease to amaze me. Dude, I was just down in Miami, and let me tell you. Um, it's, like a, it's like a roller derby or something out there, you know? The demolition derby. Joe Pierasante would drive better than those folks I met oh, in Miami. You should see him here. Oh my gosh! There's. We were talking about this today. We're coming home from church. Never do we go out that we don't see something that just makes you go. WTF? W- <laughs> WTF over. All right. Speaking of WTF, so WTF, uh, we had our little, uh, you know, start at the beginning of that. But I'm trying to figure out a neat segue into WTF. So. What a time we had with our next friend, WTF. See, there you go. Anyway, but speaking of our next friend, Andre Kellum, yeah, I'll let you set this one up, Murphy. Uh, he, I tell you what, like you say, cool, laid-back guy, but he has a tie-in to our episode with Rob Zaharashevsky yep. on the takedown of Victor Boot. Andre was a retired DE agent. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting him uh, somewhere along in our careers, and we were in special operations together, and... But uh, Andre did a lot of things in DEA that I was never aware of until I read his book, which we'll have on our website for you guys, Truth and Terror, A Drug Enforcement Story. And it's it's a work of fiction, but it's based loosely on Andre's online, on his, on his own experiences in DEA. Um, man, I mean, everything from going back to the post he was hired from, which was Chicago, which is almost never heard of in DEA. To at the end becoming a senior executive service uh, employee with DEA, which is the highest levels you can get without a presidential appointment, and creating uh, the Africa division. So it was, you know, DEA has the world divided up in divisions and you have regional directors. Uh, they didn't have one for Africa. So Andre went over and showed him how to do it. And that's what he ended up as. Guess what? And, he kind of hit upon the title of it. He gets it done, man. Exactly. Andre got it done at DEA. He did, he did, and then it, uh, there at the end of his career, he even got a presidential rank award. That's a big deal, folks. Well, and he served in Thailand, South Africa, Jamaica, man. Yep. Um, the Chicago is probably the most dangerous place he served. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Those places in Africa, holy cow. Yeah, Lagos, That's- Nigeria. He was in Nigeria. He took his family. His family went everywhere with him. Yeah. I mean, and that's the cool thing about DEA. You can travel the world on somebody else's dime. You know, some people choose to take advantage. I just, I did one overseas post. You know, I think uh, Andre did, was it five? Five of them. Five wow. of them. Yeah. But uh, I mean, what's some cool stories? And and this is a guy that if you don't sit down and talk to him like we have here on the post, you'll never know about his accomplishments. I mean, I'm just so proud of what he's done in his career. Well, and we're going to find out about it. Let me tell you how we're going to find out about how it. We're going uh, to find out about it this way, huh? because I'm going to ask you, Steve, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all from the hardest working podcast on the internet? Huh? Game of crimes. Huh? Hey, everybody. I'm not going to do that because I can't. <laughs> But get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Here we go with Andre Kellum's story. Hey, amigos, amigos, players, playwrights, doo-doo-dats, everybody in between. Welcome back. This is going to be another fun episode. You know why? Because I'm on here. 
well, yeah, right. Okay. Um, Murph just woke up from his nap, so he's still get, trying to get his bearings. Um, Brother, I'm still drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and it was leg day at the gym today. You're going to be feeling good with that. Oh, yeah. If, y'all, if you hear me whining on here, you'll know why. Uh, if you're, well, yeah, whining. That's, but what's the difference between a DEA agent and a puppy? Puppies quit whining after six weeks, Murph. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's pretty good. Damn, that's yeah, all right that's for cool, a, a trooper. Yeah. yeah, well, of course. And then, of course, then our guest of honor, mm-hmm. another somebody who retired from DEA has got some awesome stories. One of them is going to overlap with our buddy, Zach, Andre Kellum. Welcome, Mamiko. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Brother, it's an honor to have you on here, Andre. We've known each other for uh, a number of years now. I think we decades. Were, we were in some, it seems like it, it probably is decades. Yeah, man. Uh-huh. Had to, had the pleasure of working together in a few different places. So true honor to have you on here. Wait till you guys hear this story because he's done some shit that nobody else could do. Um, well, yeah, like be a trooper. Uh, he wanted to be. No, I'm just kidding. We're having that joke. Hey, but you're not too I've far got away. To from get a, I got to get a mute button on the side you, here. You have one, Murph. Just take off your headphones and walk away. <laughs> I mean, to mute you. <laughs> hey, uh, but actually, you're not too far away. Murph uh, used to live close to me till the traitorous bastard left and went to Florida. So I'm just over here in Ashburn. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, Cashburn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> tell, tell me about it. When we first moved out here. 2000. I'm driving by the high school. I'm going, man, there's a lot of money here. Look at those Lexuses and the Acuras and the Audis. They go, no, those are the students. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Teachers are on the backside with the Toyotas and the little, you know, beat up uh, Chevys. Yes. <laughs> yeah, man. But no, so that's cool. So, hey, look, as we do with everybody, think of ours, Andre. Let's talk about you. So I don't let, you know, when we say, where did you start off in life? Let's not go all the way back to where you were a babe in swaddling clothes, but the, kind of where'd you grow up at? And how did you get involved in thing of ours, this thing we call law enforcement? Well, I was uh, I grew up in the south side of Chicago. I'm a both a Cubs and a White Sox fan and uh and that, that's unusual, but I I'll tell you why. Uh I was named after a, a major league baseball player named Andre Rogers. He was a shortstop for the Chicago Cubs in the early 60s and uh that's why I had the allegiance to both the Cubs and the White Sox. I grew up on the south side. Uh when the White isn't Sox played. Bad, isn't that where bad bad Louis Louis Brown was from too, the south side of Chicago, yeah, uh-huh. the baddest yeah. part of town. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so I grew up on the south side of Chicago and and where the White Sox play, and and I was named after Chicago Cup, who plays who they play on the north side of the city. So I I went to uh, Chicago Vocational High School, same high school as Dick Buckus. Uh, no kidding, yeah, yeah, legend, uh, Chicago Bears legend. Monsters in the Midway, man. Yes, uh, Jawan Howard went to my high school. Obviously, he played in the NBA, and now he's uh, the coach of Michigan, a basketball nice. program, and uh, comedian, the late comedian Bernie Mac went to my high school. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, and then they got me. <laughs> the, most the most famous, famous of them all. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so what was it like? So where you were growing up, the, the south side of Chicago, I mean, we're, we're referring to the old uh, Jim Croce song, you know, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown. But what was the south side of Chicago growing up like when you were a Ute? Well, it was uh, a lot of apartment buildings in South Shore. I grew up in two places on the south side of Chicago. They had apartment, and Michelle Obama's from the same area in which I'm I'm from uh, on the south side. And a lot of apartment buildings, three flats and things such as that. Um, and then another neighborhood that I grew up in is the Manor, which is further, further south. And uh, they have uh, single family homes, little bungalows and things like that. And that's kind of where I grew up. So how did this interest in law enforcement start? I mean, what, from a standpoint of like crime or safety, what was it like growing up there? Was it okay? Was it a little dodgy? What was it like there in Chicago? I was tough. Um, it, it was tough in school. Um, you know, I, you know, I was a good student, but on this, at that particular time, they had the uh, the L. Rookins, and a, before that, the predecessor to the L. Rookins was the Black Peace Dog Nations. And I remember sometimes with a recess, we they didn't allow us to go out because of the, what was going on in the gang activity, especially that was when I was living in South Shore on the south side of Chicago. Wow. Do you ever see any, the, any, um, I mean, you know, anything's go down from a gang related standpoint that stood out to you? No, I, I tended to stay away from that type of stuff. And I was, I was very fortunate that, uh, you know, that I wasn't involved in any of that. And, uh, no, I didn't, I didn't see anything specific that, uh, I guess I was, I stayed out of the, stayed in the right places. Were your, were your parents, um, um, did they have a lot of influence on you? Staying away from that. Well, my, you know, and and 
my childhood was extremely chaotic, uh, very chaotic. Uh, I lived with both my parents and early on, and, and my brother and my sister. My father was a taxi driver. Uh, my mother was a nurse. Both of them were from Mississippi. Uh, they struggled due to uh, my father's gambling addiction. And needless to say, we didn't have a lot of money back then. So I kind of came from a broken home. Uh, my mother was extremely intolerant of my father. Um, I, I was actually in a vehicle one day when he came by, him and his brother came by, and she wasn't too happy because he wasn't providing as he should have been. And so she went and got her gun and uh my uh, my uh my father and my uncle took off in the car my mother shepherded me and my brother into a car and we were doing that was my first vehicle uh vehicle chase even though i wasn't the police yet right all right mom <laughs> and so she stuck her she stuck her left hand out the window out the car window and she fired a few shots at him and uh, i remember the ricochet one of the ricochets being on the hood of the car and uh so so she wasn't a good shot yeah, well she was she was driving it's like you know it's like shooting and riding a horse right i don't know you, you, who's a good shot oh. shooting and riding a horse you know oh, man. she just sent a little message to him that's all right right oh so God. so i was about i was about 10 years old when that uh, incident happened so and i remember like uh because my father gambled i remember like that every saturday morning my mother would drop me and my brother off at an apartment building where my father uh, was shooting craps or playing blackjack or poker in a basement. And she would want us to get some of the money uh, before he lost all his earnings. And uh, my brother and me would stand there for hours as he and his friends, as my father and his friends gambled. And as kids, we were exposed early on to some very salty language and, and on occasion, some very violent confrontations. And through, and through all that, that drama, uh, I was a very good student in uh, elementary school and then in high school. Did um, so with your father's gambling addiction. Were there ever any collection um, activities that uh, impacted your family? I mean, did he pay his debts, or was uh, was you guys put in any kind of danger because uh, he was uh, behind on payments? No, it was it was cash on delivery. So he uh, what he lost, he lost right there, real time. So it wasn't that he was in people. Uh, uh, so I just I just I just witnessed witnessed a lot of drama, and then later on. Uh, my mother later returned to Mississippi after being threatened by another man that she had been married to after divorcing my father. And when she had left the city, I moved in with my father and stayed in Chicago. And my mother had a car, but my father didn't. He was on. He was a he was a taxi driver. And I remember um, uh, when I went to college, my father took me to college to Eastern Illinois University. Uh, which is a, obviously a great university. That was a school where Tony Romo went, Jimmy Garoppolo went to Eastern Illinois, and Mike Shanahan, former coach wow. for Broncos, went to that school. And once again, moi went to that school. There you go. You know, I'm detecting a thread here. Yeah, you're following greatness everywhere you go. Yes, and and then maybe that's why I turned out the way I did. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, man. right? Oh, so. Man. So that was tough. My, my, you know, my father took me to college in a, in a taxi drive, in a taxi, a taxi cab, right? Now, the, here's a bigger question: right. Did he charge you for the ride? You know what? Ironically, it's when 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 I got to the, when we got to the campus, it was the first day of campus, and this 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 kid looked at looked at us and he said, "You took a cab from Chicago? That must have been really expensive." <laughs> Yeah, right. I got that kind of cash. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you know, I was I was actually very, very, to be honest with you, I was very embarrassed by that moment. Uh, as as and as I became an adult, and especially after my father passed, I came to appreciate him taking me there and getting me to that school for like a symbolic bridge through that front door at Eastern Illinois University. And that bridge for me represented my struggle through childhood, you know, what I was dealing with, with my family and the success that I had throughout my 34 year career at DEA. Wow. How did you end up picking EIU? Oh, wow. That's an interesting story. I, I didn't, I had actually signed up because I didn't have any guidance in the process. So I signed up to go to a junior college and I was an honor student at Chicago Vocational High School and uh, I was in the top 50 and we graduated like 600 people and I was in the top 50 and uh, the counselor normally just paid attention to the top 10 uh, best students and uh, she finally got wind of my plight that I was going to a junior college and uh, and I had a friend 
that his sister went to Eastern Illinois and he was going to Eastern Illinois. So when the, my counselor got involved, I said, oh, well, you don't want me to go to junior college. I think I'll try Eastern Illinois. And it was just, it was as simple as that. And then I got an, enrolled in Eastern Illinois at the last minute. What, when you were going through high school and then going into college, what was your area of study? What, what did you plan on studying? You know, what was, your, what was, uh, interested you? Well, ironically, I went to a vocational high school and in vocational high school, my major was architecture. Uh, but later on, when I went to college, I developed interest in other areas. I had, uh, a friend whose father, a family friend whose father was a, a diversion investigator for the DEA. And, and diversion investigators, they regulate and audit DEA registrants or all the folks that are in that arena that are authorized to handle and distribute pharmaceuticals. And so while I was in college and I kind of did some research, I found out the DEA had special agents and that investigated narcotics crimes. And this was in the heyday of like Miami Vice. And I knew at that time. See, that there, I, there we go again. See, every t- every time we talk to somebody from DA, there's Miami Vice is always a thing. Right. Don't tell me you wanted to drive, have one of those white boss or Armani suits and drive. You know, uh, you don't have much hair now, but you probably had hair back then. Were you going <laughs> to let it flow and be Crockett and Tubbs, brother? Right. That's what yeah, we man. were. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Everything but the Ferrari. <laughs> you had a taxi, man. You didn't need a Ferrari. Uh, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, so that was, you know, so, uh, you know, it's, and then I kind of strayed a little bit my first couple of years in co- in college. I was like partying like crazy. And so at a certain point, I had an epiphany things that I, I just I became I was I had been an A student prior to going to college. And all of a sudden I become a C student. So I joined the Marine Corps. I joined the Marine Corps Reserves. And um, I immediately went from that C student to A student. And so, and, and it just, it, it brought some normalcy to my life, you know. They got well, you focused, didn't they? Yes, brought yeah. the focus. Absolutely. It brought the focus and it just, it just, I was. It's that I, discipline. I, yeah, it, it, my, it was great. It was something that I needed. My son-in-law is a Marine formerly on active duty. I was uh, Army Reserve during my day, ROTC stuff, but um, this is me saluting you. Thank you for your service there, Marines. So, why, but, but I just, it's like picking DEA. Why did you pick the Marines? Why didn't you go something like Air Force, you know, where they could have – you would have ate nice, had great chow halls. You picked you pick probably the toughest branch. Yeah, because uh, I remember John Glenn was running for president at the time, at, at, around that time, and, and he, you know, he had orbited the earth, and he was a Marine Corps colonel. He was running for president, and I had admired him so, John Glenn, and that's literally why I picked the Marine Corps. Oh man, wow. you were a, you were a lay down. You walked in there as I want to join the Corps. Normally, they got to convince people to do it. You go, no, my hand right, up, I'm right, doing right. it. They say, yeah, we got one coming. Like, like sign him up <laughs> before he changes mind. <laughs> Where'd you go, uh, Pendleton I, or I, I, I Hollywood Marines? So I went to San Diego, and then I did my infantry training in Camp Pendleton. Yeah. I like that Hollywood Marine, yeah, out there in California. So what do you, what did you think of that, though, going from south side of Chicago, watching your dad gamble, all of that other stuff? How was it a big paradigm shift for you from that going into something where it was like really structured like that, your entire day planned out for you? It was something that I wanted. It was something that I needed. Uh, it was something internally in me that needed normalcy, needed to be able to fulfill my dreams, the, the, the drama and the things that I had lived with and grew up with, I knew that that was not normal. And I wanted to do everything I could to separate myself and, uh, you know, and, and, and to just have a normal life. That's the best way I could say it. Well, you said the reserve, so why didn't you go active duty? Or was it because you went into the reserves because you wanted to stay in college and finish I wanted up? to stay in college, and it gave me an opportunity to get a feel for it and see how, how hard the Marines was going to kick my ass, which they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yo, yeah, baby, you lost all your hair that time, too, didn't you? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> That's what I noticed when I went to basic. Uh, you could This was 79. Uh a lot of our guys were out of Vietnam, or drill sergeants and stuff. We actually had some guys went through basic that had the combat infantry badges, but they give you the choice. You can get the regular haircut buzz or the, what they call a short haircut. And I'm going, no, I'll just cut it off. One thing I noticed is that my hair grew back different. I, I'd never had all my hair cut off like that before, but when they did, it actually grew back different. 
Uh, so I regret getting that. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I was a jarhead, so it wasn't a whole lot of choices in a haircut. <laughs> no, you, how, do you, how do you want your haircut? No, well, off, I guess. You right. Know. right. Oh, cool. So, um, but you did that. So you must have done that during the summer, right? Like yes, I did that during the summer. And ju- yeah. Sophomore yeah. and junior year? Yeah. Yeah. So, so your junior and senior year, obviously a lot different for you. What? So you'd already looked at DEA diversion investigators. So tell me your path now through college. What did you do? You're going through that. What'd you major in? I majored in criminal justice when I found out about, when I did my research and I found out about the special agents uh, positions, that's when I, I majored, I, I majored in criminal justice and that's, that was the path I chose. Now, when you were in college, was your mom still alive? Yes. Okay. Yeah, she, so, but she was living in she was living in at that point she returned to Mississippi where okay. she grew up. So, but so you you get out of college. So, what do you do right out of college? You um you're probably what 21, 22 at that point, right? Yeah, I was a, I was a, after graduating. I was I was a, a security guard at the Exchange National Bank on South LaSalle Street, where Oprah Oprah Winfrey actually banked when she came on the scene in oh, Chicago. Like, okay, I'm getting tired and of this name dropping. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just saying, I, I, I can't help myself. I'm just saying. The king and I hate name droppers. You know? No, <laughs> I mean, I, I'd be standing on the floor, and she would come in with the same energy that you see see for years. She's very friendly speaking to everybody and and i and that's when i actually applied for dea when i was a security guard and and that was in 1985 you put her down as a reference no 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 <laughs> I, I wish i wish that could have been a different career path oh you know? yeah but, so that must have been neat so you got to meet her and then yeah but you're doing at the bank so but um what age did you what was the age was it 25 did you have to be 25 to get on or just 22 with the college degree I got on DEA. I applied when I was like 20. I was, I had to be like 22 when I applied. And I actually went to the academy when I was 24. I had another job in between. I uh, became a probation officer in a new unit called intensive probation supervision for a Cook County course in Chicago. And that unit, I found myself in the Chicago housing projects at night to make sure that those probationers were home since based on the agreement that they had signed, uh, this was their last chance to do right before before being sentenced to the Department of Corrections if they screwed up. And the, they, they asked me if, I, you know, when I applied for the job, they asked me, was I willing to do this? Was I willing to go into projects at night? And I, I didn't I didn't have any better sense. And so so because it was a new unit and a lot of regular probation officers would not do that, would not take that risk. And so immediately I, I wasn't just a regular probation officer. I got rank because you know like we're gonna we're gonna give you a little bump to help you with this you know and uh and so i was a probation officer and after one and a half years at working as a probation officer uh, as a probation officer dea came calling and uh and i reported to the chicago office when so you were you go ahead chief when you were in that po position did you go to cabrini green oh yeah i went to henry horner robert taylor i went to all of those places and i was actually and i was i was threatened um by probation probationers families and things such as that and and, 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 and i right no i went and bought myself a a, a nice uh, 357 i had a huge i had a huge gun Was that authorized? It, it actually, you are you're a peace officer. It is authorized. So okay. I did I did what was necessary to make sure that I was uh, carrying legitimately. I tell you what, man. I have a cousin that uh, was Chicago PD, retired a long time ago as lieutenant. But uh, uh, I so this would have been in let me think here ninety seven. I think it was December ninety seven. Went up there for court from a case I'd worked undercover on, and uh, the the buying hundreds of pounds of weed and the sources ended up being Mexicans in Chicago. So DEA up there eventually popped them. Uh, so I went up to testify and, and my cousin was on the evening shift and he was a sergeant at the time and he'd swing by and pick me up the hotel and I'd just ride with him in the evenings and big guy, former Marine black belt karate. I mean, he was Billy badass. He was a tough guy. And he, you know, took me out to have dinner that evening with his other sergeants and, and, uh, I think he felt the need to show me something. So he got his guys together. He says, all right, we're going to Cabrini Green. And I'm like, what's that? He said, oh, you don't know? You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a country boy. Well, you say, you say good times, huh? Like the show <laughs> yeah. Good Times. Like that's where it was <laughs> supposed to be, Cabrini Green. <laughs> so we, we come pulling up and he says, listen, now, before you, when we get there, when we stop, when you get out of the car, run inside. And I thought, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to surprise people, you know? And, and so we came in at all angles and we ran inside and, uh, Man, it was dark in there. I mean, the, the all the lights had been broken out or the bulbs had been stolen. And, you know, the, basically all we do is harass people for a few minutes. And, and 
then he got everybody together when it, you know, got everybody accounted for. And he's like, all right, now listen, Steve, when we go back to the car, run back to the car. And I'm like, Bobby, it's, his name is Bob Cooper. I said, Bobby, it's snowing. I'm not going to melt. If I get wet, I'll be okay. And he's like, it ain't about that, buddy. He said, because they're going to start throwing cans of food at us. And if it hits you, it's going to kill you. No, it's, it's pretty rough going up in those places. I still remember it to these days, to, to this day. And uh, you go in these places and these places, the, there is a lot of poverty and it's not well kept, obviously. There's a lot of uh, cockroaches and things like that, and it's just like it's like it's like freaking madness, man. You know, and I'm, I'm glad they they tore those things. That's down. what I'm about to say. It's yeah. uh, Cabrini Green's gone now. So. Yeah, all those projects are gone. They, uh, uh, you know, the gentrification. They built uh, a lot of uh, townhouses and homes and, and a lot of those places. So they they got rid of those. And then, unfortunately, the, those folks, the, all those that that populace who lived in those places, they moved they moved out. The other areas, and and ironically, and and chaos started in other areas because where were those people going to go? Anytime you have a, a population that displaced, it it's, it's, it creates chaos. Yeah, they're not going to change their mannerisms. And right. I tell you what, for a small town country boy from the south, that was a very high opening. <laughs> wow. So, um, but you finally got on DEA. So, what year did you get on DEA? That was in 1987, and uh, and as soon as I reported to the Chicago office, before even going to the FBI Academy in, in Quantico for 13 weeks, I saw a task force officer who saw me named Gus Lett, a black guy. I was meeting him for the first time. Gus, uh, guy, rest his soul. Uh, he was just Chicago police sergeant and in the task force and in task force group seven at the time. And and I didn't know it, but uh, he was the head of security for Michael Jordan's detail. And well, anyway, uh, Gus looks at me and says, you are going to buy plenty of dope. And uh, uh, I was I was in my early 20s, six foot four, 170 pounds. And I guess Gus didn't believe that anyone would think that I was the police or an undercover agent. And of course, he was correct, because later I would be buying cocaine and heroin undercover. On the south side, I was buying uh, cocaine from the brothers. And on the north side, I was buying heroin from the Nigerians. Wow. So, but when you reported to the Chicago field office, you had not been to the academy yet. So technically you had no formal training in undercover work or anything. I mean, you had the probation, but that's, that's a world, but that's a different world. So what do they do? Just say, go see what you can do. They just threw you out there and said, go buy some dope. As soon as I got out of the academy, my first week I was undercover. I mean, they, I guess they thought what I learned was good enough, and 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 not for nothing. Uh, being around uh, my 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 late father. Say, that's what I was going to say. You had you had a little bit of indoctrination. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I had some real field training. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, and that's I the mean, cool thing about yeah. DEA guys—they adapt to the situation and they make right. it work, man. Right. And I'm I'm I was I'm from Chicago, and so I was able to blend. I had a familiarity, you know, and so it was, it, it was, it was good. What, you was, know? what was your back class number? 52. Uh, yeah, so you're you right know. ahead of me. I was in 53. Yeah. And at that time, you know, obviously we had DEA instructors at the FBI Academy because we didn't have our own training facility in Quantico as DEA now has. And uh, although I've been running on the Chicago lakefront, when it was a lot tougher when I got there because it was it was extremely hot and humid. It wasn't that humid when I was running. Welcome to Virginia. Chicago. Yeah, yeah. yeah baby. So I, was, I went I went to training in the middle of the summer and we ran up and down those hills in Quantico where Marine Corps officers are trained and commissioned. It, it didn't take me long, you know, to lose weight from that 170 pounds that I was when I was in the Marine Corps. So I was really skinny, and I look at some of the pictures of me back then, and so I look like I have a terminal illness, you know, and uh, <laughs> I, I weigh. I saw- I, I weigh a hundred pounds. I weigh a hundred pounds more now. But fortunately or unfortunately, I weigh a hundred pounds more now. Yeah. Well, um, I saw your picture on your um, website, Truth and Terror. We're going to talk about that, truthandterror.com. But it's you in uh, kind of a looks like a Jamaican posse or kind of you know street get up. You know, you were. That was what was that one from? Uh, that was a uh, that picture is from uh, when we were doing uh, money pickups in Chicago. We were doing Operation Pisces, Operation Green Ice, and uh, I think that was probably around three hundred thousand dollars that we had. Uh, it was a money pickup. We were picking up money from Colombians. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you 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 do you do have that look. It's not the same. You got the nice look now. You're I had, to, I had on a, I think I had on like a Bill Cosby sweater. You know, yeah, and, and, just the purple that, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a Bill Cosby sweater. Remember those sweaters that Bill Cosby yep. used to wear on the show? I had a bunch of those. But you had the look though, man. You had that look. It's like 
if I looked at you something like that, it would be you know you, you'd go say some type of a banger or some type of you know it might even be Jamaican you know with right, that kind right, of look. Right. Except you didn't have the dreadlocks. So. Right, right. Cool. Man. All right. So what we've established the fact is you didn't need much OJT because you had like eight years of OJT. Right, right. Childhood right. <laughs> 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 work. Doing all that stuff. So um, we'll just let's talk about your progression. We're going to because we're going to talk about a couple things. I want folks to know. We had Rob Zach on uh, Zahara Shesky, and we were talking about Operation Relentless. But you know, as you told us too, and as we all know, you just don't you just don't parachute into a place and everything's ready for you. You got to liaise. You got to work with the local teams. So that was you there in Bangkok. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about one called Project uh, Synergy. Synergy. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, let's kind of talk about how did you get into that. So you're in Chicago, but. You obviously wanted to go places because in your career, you've been to what, four or five different uh, countries, right, where you've yeah, worked? Yeah, five. Yes. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are those countries? I worked in uh, Kingston, Jamaica. I worked in uh, Lagos, Nigeria, uh, Bangkok, Thailand, uh, Rabat, Morocco, and Cape Town, South Africa. Hey. Next time you're over in Nigeria, can you find out where that guy is with the $21 million? Because I just want a piece of it. <laughs> yeah. How come you never see Yeah, man. Oh, man. So we'll talk about the do because Lagos was one of the few places to where even back then before 9-11, but it was one of those places that had restrictions and warnings about going to Lagos. That was not a uh, fun area. But let's talk about – so what was your first international posting then? What, what made you decide to leave Chicago? Well, actually, it was uh, when I found – you know. Find found out about all these uh, opportunities, these global assignments. I mean, I was I was all in. I had applied. I had applied to others before I had actually got selected for Kingston, Jamaica. But I had did such a, a large investigation in Chicago that the special agent in charge is at the time Ken Cloud. And he rewarded me and gave me opportunity, and I was in his office. And Tom Cash was a sack of. Uh, of uh, Miami, and he, he was considered because Miami was the heyday of all the cocaine coming into South Florida. Tom Cass was commit, considered a, a super sack, super special agent in charge. And uh, I was in a, a Ken Cloud's office when he called him, and he says, um, uh, "You got anybody you got in mind for that assignment in Kingston, Jamaica?" Uh, and and he must have told him no because because I remember Cloud saying, "I got a superstar right here. I want to send down there," and uh, and then that's when I got that assignment down in Kingston, Jamaica. Sweet. How long had you been on? Uh, eight years. Okay, and you were in Chicago the whole time up until yes. that. Mm-hmm. Now was that was that what you requested when you were at the uh, academy? Chicago. Chicago. Oh yeah, yeah. Because uh, obviously we had. Um, uh, a lot of times, a lot of folks don't want to go to the big cities when they go going through the academy. And I think we had a, 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 a dream list of three or five or whatever. And I didn't think, uh, because they kind of told us they don't expect to go back to you, uh, the, the place that you hired on from. And I really didn't expect to go back to Chicago. So I put down like Atlanta and New Orleans. I wanted to stay away from New York because I, I didn't think I could afford it. And, Nobody uh, can. Yeah. And so I, I put Chicago third, and and, and it's only three of us put Chicago down on our uh, dream sheet of where we wanted to be reassigned. And we all three got Chicago. Well, I'm surprised as active as things were in Miami, you know, Murph, even you went down there that, that you didn't get hauled off and went go to Miami. Yeah, it was, I think we had uh, in our class, four of us ended up in Miami. Did you, did any of the guys in your class go there? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, several. Yeah. 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 So it was, uh, back then they were trying to beef up Miami, New York and LA were the big three offices back then. And, but you know, the thing I want to point out is, is it sounds exciting that Andre got selected to go to Jamaica. But it's not the north coast of Jamaica where all the right. tourists go. Right. It's Kingston. Kingston. Yes. That is one, the that land is of one. wood and water. Oh, that place is that's extremely dangerous. I, Kevin and I went undercover down there one time uh, back when Steve Widener was the country. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. yeah. And uh, and we ended up in Port Antonio, which is right. up on the northeast corner. But right. just going through Kingston, man, you had to have a gun in your hand driving through some right. of those neighborhoods. Right. That's a tough place. Yeah. It was it was very exciting back then. It was very oh, exciting. Yeah. Kipsy, that's a youth. It was very exciting. So uh, <laughs> how often were you getting shot at since it was so exciting? Oh, his you, mom came to town. No. He didn't listen to mom. She exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you you know how to handle yourself so you don't put yourself in a situation where people are going to shoot at you or they are afraid to shoot at you. So where did you work out of then? Um, would they have a consulate down there or you guys uh, have an yeah, office? Yeah, the U.S. Embassy in Kingston. Okay. Yeah, and actually the embassy at that particular time was in a bank building. They didn't actually have a standalone facility. It was actually a bank building way back then. Oh, 
Yeah. And so we had, so we had like, I think we had like three or four floors in that bank building. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Nice. It's it's probably nicer than an embassy. Yeah. Any family with you at that point? Oh, my wife and kids. Yeah. You're bringing them to Kingston, Jamaica. Yes, I did. And and, and not for nothing. And I took them to Lagos, Nigeria. Some people say, some people say, oh, shit. (laughs) You're going, look, if I can survive gambling and all that other stuff, my kids can survive Jamaica and Nigeria. Yeah. Right. And, you know, before we started this recording, we were talking about family and his kids are all successful. So they've done good. Yeah. So they've been to, you know, several international schools. And so they all college graduates. And so I'm really proud of all my children. Absolutely. Wow, man. Well, you toughen them up. It's like if you can survive, you know, Nigeria and Thailand and uh, all those places, you're going to do good. So if if you can survive my dad, life's going to be easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, so let's let's talk about that. You go down there. Um, had you had you had any advance? Because that was before the internet was big. I mean, it was just starting to come out. So it's not like everything we got now. Google Street. You can go look at stuff. Google Earth. How big of a shot did you know what you were getting into before you went down there? Well, yeah. When you get hired, uh, when you get get selected to go to a foreign post, you go to a foreign orientation. So they try to give you classes, or or, or with State Department, they give you uh, training and different things like that. And so DEA has a program, and it's, and you go into the State Department program, so you can make that adjustment. And how well did it work? Uh, it worked <laughs> fine. I mean, it was it was uh, it was fine. I was from I was from the city anyway. It was kind of. It's, Kingston was obviously quite crowded, um, but not obviously as crowded as like a place like Lagos. But it wasn't a huge adjustment. The biggest adjustment I had was driving on the opposite side of the road <laughs> and, and being a city guy. And for some reason, the office had uh, stick shifts, manual transmission. Thing. Yeah, I had never drove one in my life. <laughs> and uh, so that was the biggest struggle, trying not to drive off one of the mountains and kill myself with those <laughs> vehicles. Down in Bahamas, they drive on the opposite side of the road, but they have left-hand drive cars driving on the left-hand side of the road. It's like, it's not supposed to work that way. Right, yeah. So it's, you uh, you got to turn your signal light on, your windshield wipers come on. It's like, right. oh, crap. Yeah, so it, it, that, that, was a, that was a huge adjustment. Yeah. So, But how long did you spend in um, uh, Jamaica? Three and a half years. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Jamaican posse stuff, you know, worked a lot right. of fun stuff down yeah. there, right? Yeah, and it was, it was a lot of corruption down there, too, uh, you know, and uh, it makes it, 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 it makes it very challenging to get things done, huge challenges to get things done, you know. But uh, with me and one of my partners, we were able to establish like a, a, a program to identify uh, informants. So we got a bunch of informants and we uh, identified the largest kingpins that were operating on the islands. And uh, subsequently, after we left, then uh, DEA got special units down there, and they had a wire intercept program. That so we kind of laid the foundation for for things to move on because there was a, there was a lot of challenges with the with the corruption that was taking place down there. How corrupt was the police force? Well, it, it just depends. Uh, I worked specifically with a great guy that. Uh, Later became the commissioner of police, and his name was Carl Williams, and he was uh, in charge of the narcotics division of the Jamaican Constabulary Force. When I was down there, at one point, he was threatened, and he had to uh, relocate to the United States for a few years. Wow. And so he was a, he was a great guy. And so you just have to pick, in, in any situation, any country, you have to figure out who you can work with and try to work around those parameters of the corruption and, tr- and try to do what you can to mitigate the, the corruption that's going on in certain countries. That ever uh, did it ever affect your investigations? A- any of the corruption, whether it might be political officials or inside the police department? Well, we, we were able to make it work. Sometimes you're able to, uh, you know, working with you, you know, leverage in the U.S. Embassy, the mission, uh, putting pressure on folks to let them, let them know some things you don't want to become public. And so, you know, I learned a lot, and that 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 was a that was an education I couldn't get working in Chicago. That was strictly an education I got when I got in the foreign arena and how you leverage uh, those folks at the United States Embassy because they can make you, they can make your life uh, a lot 
they can make your life hard, but they can make it a lot better, especially when you work with counterparts. And and then, you know, you have the U.S. ambassador always going to be supporting you. So they're going to be in a position to go to the highest levels of the government and, and address certain issues that you might find that you're working with. And so it uh, it was a tremendous learning experience, especially being in a place like Kingston. And as long as your ambassador is pro DEA, absolutely. But when <laughs> they're not, true. no, they can it can go the other way. Quickly. That's true, and I've experienced that, man. And they have you, they have you seeing ghosts when they're not. You know, they like they 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 look some some of them. They give FBI a lot of uh, you know they 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 think the FBI is all that, and they, they look at the DEA as being rogue cowboys or whatever. In spite of all the success that we've had over the course of the decades that we've been in existence, and they just uh, I find that if they don't have any familiarity. And uh, over the course of my career, if they didn't have that familiarity with DEA, then a lot of times they would make your life more difficult. Harder than it has to be. Yeah. And, and so when they when they were like political appointees, that was almost better than uh, being a, a career foreign service person that became an ambassador. Because when the political appointees come, you could get yourself in the door and talk to the ambassador or whatever. And he maybe based on what he's seen on TV or whatever, he's going to have appreciate appreciation of what you do and you get to him before some of those state department officers get to him and start telling him that dea they just roll cowboys you know what i'm saying and Jack Booth uh, thugs. yeah so it was it no, was no, that's a, atf murph that's atf uh, <laughs> we got lumped in with him on that one so, so it's, a tr- it's a tremendous learning experience to be in um to, to going overseas yeah what well, it probably prepared you well like you said for your other posts so when oh, you were absolutely. over there is that were you uh had you been promoted yet or were no, you I was, still- no i was i was i was i was just an assistant attaché special agent so yeah you're absolutely right and uh, over the course of my uh foreign assignments uh i grad I, I i got more rank and it was from that first experience of working in jamaica it laid the found work laid the groundwork for what I knew to take that I needed to do when I moved on in my career. So from Jamaica now, did you have, after those assignments, did you have to rotate back to the U.S. or were you able to go from one country to the next? Now, I went to El Paso, Texas. I went on the southwest border and uh, going from Jamaica to El Paso, you can't believe the shock. And it's like me and my family members sitting there. Well, did you there. get a country briefing for El Paso before <laughs> you went? <laughs> exactly. We were right across the bri- we were right across the border from Juarez, and uh, and and the, the Rio Grande is there. And that Rio Grande is not like the John Wayne movie. This is like a, like a freaking little sewer stream that's going through between Juarez and and El Paso. And uh, I, I had the border response group, and we were inundated in cases. It it was just like it, it just it just never stopped the, the cases of people coming across the border. So for our players out there, there's a place down there. You and I have talked about it from where they have a facility down there called Epic, the El Paso Information Center, Intelligence Center. Was that where you were assigned? No, I was assigned to the field office. Field office, okay. Yeah, yeah. Epic yeah, is the intelligence center. Yeah. And if you would, Andre, just explain to the uh, to our listeners how you end up as the border response group, how you end up with all those cases when you've got CBP or HSI making seizures as they're coming across the border. How does that, how does that get to DEA? They actually have, I have, I have border patrol agents in my group and DEA agents in my group. And so when at a checkpoint, when those drugs uh, are, are, are discovered at a checkpoint, my, my agents, uh, border patrol DEA agents, they had to go to those checkpoints and take the bodies, take the arrestees, and 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 and, and start the uh, adjudication process through the courts. So we just kind of adopted those cases, and it was just freaking constant. It was just it was just going every day, holiday, and so once again, a lot of people would have you know a load of drugs on them walking across that border at that at that particular time which was that Rio Grande coming in uh, from Juarez into El Paso and it's it's basically it's sewage and so we had to have we had to have like uh, plastic on the seats and stuff like that and it keep uh, it was just like you, you just it, it's something that people were, have no clue about and uh and then when you have like uh uh, arrestees, you have to have, and we, all our all my guys had pickup trucks, and so because they had to throw all the, they would have to throw the dope in the back of the pickup trucks, and so they would have to convoy, and so you always had to have at least two agents with uh, one arrestee, and so it, and it just like I said, it went on 
every single day. And I remember that we got inspected and one of the inspectors, you know, we had, we had like 180 cases open and stuff. And one of the inspectors said, how come you don't have any informants? I said, cause I got 180 cases. Absolutely. <laughs> Who's got you know? I got all the informants I need. It's called border patrol. It's called right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It was something. Hey, man. Well, let's, let's, let's actually, let's, let's take a, just a, a quick parallel from that and talk about how it relates now to the issues we're having with fentanyl or things coming across the border because you got seizures at the border and then you've got activities between the borders, people who are illegally crossing. Back then, were what kind of seizures were you getting at the port of entry, you know, through controlled areas versus in between uh, controlled areas? Most of the ports of entry, that's when the cocaine would come um, and then it'd be hitting in, in vehicles and things like that. A lot of times with the checkpoints, a lot of times and in between, those was people who were trying to on foot walk, and they had the, and they had the marijuana and stuff. So that was, that was the difference. So we had a lot more of those cases with the, with the marijuana than we did with the cocaine uh, back then. But uh, that was, that was the kind of nature of what we were doing. And, and, and like I said, my staff, I had like I had like 20 people working for me and we were inundated. Man, when did you get a breather? You, you never got a breather. The holiday, I had staff that were, uh, had to work on the holidays every 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 day of the year. It's just continuous. It's, yeah. it's, it's like they and, you know, and for everybody that gets caught, how many that get through? Right. And so when I got a chance and, and I had early years earlier, I had heard that we had an office in uh, uh, in Africa, in Nigeria. And as, as chaotic as that place is, when I got the opportunity, I had always said, boy, being an African-American, I would love to go to Africa. And when that opportunity popped up, so I applied for that and I got selected to be the uh, country attache, uh, the supervisor in charge of uh uh, the office in Lagos, Nigeria. See, now, dude, by this point in my career, I'd be thinking, I'd, I'd want a cush little office with not much going on. Put me in Iowa or something, but here you are. You're going from the south side of Chicago to the Marine Corps to, uh, you know, back to Chicago to Jamaica, El Paso, and now you want to go to Lagos, Nigeria? Right. And 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 when I got there and I met with uh, the head, my head counterpart, uh, he, like, had, like, five women with him, and he says, these are my cousins. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. So as soon as you get there, they're trying to compromise you. And it's just like, as soon as you get off the plane, it's on. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like, and, and, and it's, oh, once again, that was a tremendous experience for me, you know? How did that, how did that go with your wife? Well, you know, but the, one of the cousins started calling my office, and I had a feisty secretary and said, no, he don't want to speak to you. You know, and so she hung up on, she hung up on one, of the, one of the cousins, one of the ladies. Good for her. <laughs> oh my! I mean, look, I've I've had my little run-ins in Las Vegas and stuff, but nothing like five at once. It's like here, here are my cousins, man. You know, and so I have a good friend of mine. He was actually an Arkansas State Trooper. The boy is as white as a as a saltine cracker, you know. Or, and but he got divorced. He ended up meeting a very nice girl, and her name is Folake, uh-huh. and she comes from Nigeria. Her her mother was like the Surgeon General of Nigeria and stuff. And it is so fun to see these two together because he is he is out of his league. First of all, she's brilliant. She works at IBM and stuff. But they went over to Mauritius, uh, and they were actually in Nigeria for some of the wedding stuff. Right, right. Uh, I mean, the colors and stuff are beautiful. But this dude, he is getting run ragged. He had no <laughs> idea what he was signing up for. <laughs> dude, no, it's 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 it's, a, it's incredible going over there, and you and you get over there, and it's just especially my first time getting there. It was like it was just so many people it was so many people and i I just i can't even describe it and places it'd be areas in which is like a hundred thousand people it was just like freaking crazy and you just can't travel to the airport and 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 just come into lagos and and think it's going to be okay you will get robbed it's uh you have to have expedited you have to have a whole process to get uh from the airport and back then we had uh what's called react teams or reaction teams so we were in an armored vehicle because the crime is really really bad there with the with that that population and you have a a a react team in the front and they're heavily armed with the long guns and you have one behind you and they're heavily armed and even when my children went to school they had react teams that uh, uh, took my kids to a great international school, phenomenal international school. But you had to have a react team escort the school bus that my children were on every day they went to school. Oh my gosh! They would they would stop a school bus and and accost them. 
Well, they wouldn't have caught. They wouldn't have cost the React team. Right, right. But but that's you need the security. It's you need to be a hard target, and uh, so that's that's what was going on when I when I worked there, and it was just and so the traffic was so bad. It was it was it was, you know it was the worst traffic, and you've been around the world, Steve, and it was just so bad. The last my last day, I was assigned to Lagos, Nigeria. We were on the road. I have. I mean, we got two Suburbans. I have a German Shepherd that I got in Lagos, and I have my luggage in one Suburban, and I got my family in the other Suburban. React team in front of us, React team behind the vehicle with my dog and my luggage. We're in traffic for five hours. Could not get to the airport. Had to go back to the house we just left. Had to turn around and do that process the, the, the next day. And the oh next day, God. I got to the air, I got to the airport after two and a half hours. That's the traffic of oh. Lagos, Nigeria. Now, let me ask you something. Are you still married? Yes. To the same wife? Yes, an okay, angel. First of all, yeah, that's what I'm about to say. Has, she been, has she been anointed in sainthood yet for putting up with this? <laughs> Holy cow! Yeah. Wow. What 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 career path did your wife take? She's a uh, she's a diversion. Uh, and she became she worked at the embassies. All our posts. She worked for the State Department for the uh, Office of uh, International Narcotics Affairs. Uh, uh, you know, you 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 familiar with it, uh, INL, uh, International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, and and then so when we transitioned back to the states, she became a diversion investigator. So she she retired as a su- as a supervisor, a staff coordinator at DEA headquarters from a diversion investigator. Very nice, very nice. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sitting here going, I just can't imagine those conversations that day, five hours in traffic. We're doing what? We're turning around? Hell no. We're going to go to the airport. We're going to spend all night there. I am not doing this again. Honey, don't make me call your mother over here. Right, (laughs) right. No, it was it, it, it was it, it was. Was that a two year or three year assignment? That was a two year assignment, and I did I did two and a half years there. So yeah, because it took you six months to get back and forth right. on the airport, right. man. Well, and a two-year assignment in DEA, those are considered hardship posts. That's yes, why they're not three uh, years. Absolutely. And for the State Department also, a two-year assignment, yeah. And so when I had that assignment, I was in charge of West Africa. So I had 20 countries. And so I was traveling to all these different countries. So I'm going in and out of the airport all the time. And uh, it was a, it was an incredible experience to go to all these specific countries, going all the way from Mauritania down to the Congo. You know, and that's, I got to tell you, man, that's one of the exciting things about DEA, in my opinion, and I think Andre is going to agree 100% here because he's already agreeing to it, is you have so many opportunities that you can take advantage of. And you look back on the folks that were your friends in high school, you know, and, and you look and see what they've done with their lives. And, and, and you know, business-wise, they're successful. But like, you know, a lot of my friends in West Virginia, they go to Myrtle Beach every summer for a week of beach vacation. And that's about the extent of it. Right, right. And you've got all these opportunities where you get to go live and visit and travel and and just experience all this stuff. But I don't know if you'll agree with this, uh, uh, Andre. I started calling you Morgan. I apologize. I sincerely apologize for that. (laughs) Um, The one thing, as much as I love Columbia and as much experience as you have in the overseas environment, did it make you appreciate living in the United States? Oh, absolutely. I'm the same absolutely. way, brother. <laughs> At one way. point, I was so happy just to get a Mac, especially when I was in Nigeria and I came back to McDonald's. I was like, oh, my yeah. God, I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to buy myself a franchise. Because I know oh. this is like real beef here, you know, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm you know, take- we, we would come back from uh, from Columbia and, and we'd fly into Roanoke, Virginia. And, and that was an experience, too. Uh, but my wife's parents would pick us up, and the first place we went was McDonald's. Yeah, and we right. ate Big Macs, and the next right. day we were sick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, God, yeah. No, I remember uh, when I was going through the process of getting my clearances, the top secret stuff. Um, I went back. I went back to my fortieth class reunion. I date myself a little bit. Yes, I graduated uh, over forty fart. years ago. Yeah, the old, the old fart. fat. And um, to your point, Steve, I'm talking to folks, and there's like a lot of them just haven't moved out. And it's like I know when I went through the clearance stuff. Um, if you have a diplomatic passport, you don't have to declare countries on there. So I didn't declare certain countries, you know, Pakistan, Turkey, stuff like that. But I'd been to over 50 different countries mm-hmm. and not staying at a lot, but, you know, travel through or being there for business and stuff. And it's like, to your point, it's like you look back on that. I grew up as a youth. My dad was in the army. We lived in Iran for three years during the days of the Shah. You know, you think back at those times, you think, man, what a, it, it just colors your worldview. But to your point, Steve, 
I, like well, when, when I was in Columbia <laughs> coming back that second time and we all got sick because I'd been staying away from the water and I ate a salad that last night that had been washed oh. in water. Oh, but I was, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, come back and it's like, your same thing. It's like, you got to take me somewhere. I got to have some, I got to have some food I can trust. Just, I don't yeah. care what it is. Just, you know, and, and just for our listeners, listen, we're not saying there's anything wrong with growing up and living in the same place for your whole life. There's absolutely nothing wrong no, with no, that. No, but, but you know what? But I think, but I think to, but kind of brings up point though, but there is so much to be learned to your point. Your how much did your worldview change by working out of Jamaica and understanding how things I mean, how things work in the real world. It's not like, oh hey, it's hunky dory, we're all living in our nice gated community. No, you're there where people are getting robbed, killed, you know, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Y- you have to have your head on a swivel the whole time. Um, you know, and it's 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 not an easy job, but the stuff you learn down there is what prepares you for all the other stuff. Look, if it was easy, the FBI would be doing it, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea about the the ins and outs of the Department of State. It was just something that I that it was just like some some abstract that I heard about on TV. But no, I, I have an appreciation for what they actually do. Uh, now that I've uh, worked hand in hand with those folks, not that we're always in agreement with them, but exactly. they do have without a, a, without a doubt, without a doubt, that diplomacy is important. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.